This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Our partner for this episode is Verde Energia Pacifica. Verde Energia Pacifica is proud to offer immersive educational experiences in the Costa Rican rainforest. Come learn permaculture where it's lived, from people who practice it every day. Learn practical solutions for the regeneration of the planet, sharpen your design and critical thinking skills, and engage fully in a thriving permaculture community. Visit verdeenergia.org. That's V-E-R-D-E-N-E-R-G-I-A dot O-R-G for more information. You'll, of course, find a link to that and more in the show notes for this episode. My guest for this episode is Andrew Slack. He joins me to share his thoughts and personal experience on how to use storytelling to create social change. A climate activist and former head of the nonprofit Harry Potter Alliance, which used the collective fandom of J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World to create a movement of goodwill in the real world, we talk about his approach of using the arts to catalyze movements through the stories we share, as fans of fiction, from our culture, or our individual lives. He also asks some questions of me about why permaculture matters, in a conversation that wound up personal for both of us. Enjoy this conversation with Andrew, and I'll join you again after. Then Andrew, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to work on issues of storytelling and myth-making and social change, and we'll take the conversation from there. Thank you, Scott. That's an excellent question. I have been in love with stories my entire life. I would listen to stories when I was three and four. That's what kept me to go to sleep. My first movie in the movie theater was E.T. Mine too. Really? Was We yeah. both saw E.T. as the first movie. And I, I, I have this memory of my parents trying to get me out of the theater. And I was just, I was throwing a temper tantrum. I never wanted to leave that place. I, I've come to find that movie theaters are such a source of strength and peace and power for me. It's, it's like you're, we're, lo- we're, we're looking at a mirror and it's a magical mirror. It's a metaphysical mirror. We, we step into it and we're, we are those characters. And then we come back and we are transformed. Uh, when I was a little kid, I I would just tell people stories. I just just start telling ghost stories. Kids used to love my ghost stories, and I would be performing and acting, and that kind of blended together. Acting became a form of storytelling for me, and I would run. I started running for president of my school, and I would use rap songs to do that, and uh, and I'd integrate stories about what we were going to do as a school, and 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 and, and, and I ended up winning uh, many times, even though I was being made fun of and picked on, and in throughout all of that, I had this just this love of, of the arts and storytelling and acting. And I also cared deeply about the world and about humanity. And I had an English teacher, Mr. Good, in 12th grade. Uh, this must have been in, I think, 1998, when he posed this question of, is it the storyteller's job? Is it the actor's job to do nothing but try to get applause and do a good job on stage? Or is Shakespeare correct that all the world is a stage and therefore that we have an obligation as artists, that we are elevating the human condition such that we should, we should care about humanity and, and try to use the arts for change. And I really, it really struck me. And it really struck so much of the upbringing I had. My mom is an art teacher and she brought so much of that feeling of art and empathy and feelings to me. And then when, I, when Mr. Good said that, it just, it's like that's what I wanted to dedicate my life to, was using the power of story to create change. When I got to uh, my undergraduate at Brandeis University, I had these amazing mentors that were literally all about using the power of story to create social change and to create social transformation. And then I was in a comedy troupe 
and I started that, that group uh, while in college. Somehow, somebody asked me to be on a TV show. Uh, there was a campus TV show, and uh, excuse me, campus TV station, and he had this idea for a show called Late Night Snack with Andrew Slack. And so I was this late night talk show host. It was very th- funny, and I, I mean, funny to be doing this show that had my name on. It was weird, and I, um, that ended up being transformed into a comedy troupe that had, did not have my name on it, called The Late Night Players. And after we graduated, the program that I was in that was all about the power of stories and, um, and how they can connect us and, and shift the power of our stories as individuals, that program ended the year that I graduated because the main professors that started it had retired. They were retiring that year. So my purpose became I am going to go forward and use what I've, been, what I've learned in college and I'm going to put that into the world. The program was called HIP. It was short for Humanities Interdisciplinary Program. And I just said, I am going to make HIP happen in the world. But in the meantime, my career was the late night players. We were a a sketch comedy troupe and we began performing in Cambridge where we were living, doing some avant-garde comedy. And then eventually we got all these gigs at colleges across the country. We learned how how to customize our material for different audiences and we were soon performing at hundreds of colleges across the country. That was my full-time job. Uh, And in the midst of all of that, I was supplementing my career by working with kids, and they kept talking about Harry Potter. And I just, I, it, Harry Potter sounded stupid to me. So I just, it just like, what is, uh, it's a boy wizard, I don't, I, whatever. But I, I finally just picked it up on, on Halloween 2002 and read the first chapter while on a break at work at the Boys and Girls Club. And I, I looked to the person sitting next to me, something shot through me. And uh, it's only happened one other time in my life um, with a book. And, it, it's, and I, it just said, your life has been changed. And I, I, sat, I, I looked at the person next to me. I said, this book just changed my life. And I didn't know why. It just did. And I couldn't stop reading Harry Potter. So this is while I'm in the comedy troupe. I'm talking to the, the guys in the group about, uh, we were all guys in that group, about Harry Potter. And none of them were really, in, either, either weren't into Harry Potter, they hadn't read it. You know, we were a little old for Harry Potter at that point. We were in our early 20s, but I became an evangelist, and I got them all to read it, to get them all excited about it. I would say to people, the two most important things I've done since graduating college is be in the first ever romantic relationship I'd ever been in, was after college, and, and, and begin dating after that, and, and reading Harry Potter. And people, you know, they could understand the first one, but they couldn't understand the second, and I, nor could I explain the second. I had no actual way to explain it. And I would start writing notes and notes and notes about how using Harry Potter would be core to my launching of HIP, of the Humanities Interdisciplinary Project, I started calling it. This homage to my professors, this whole thing that I was brought up uh, around. And then eventually I, I just kept trying different projects that would be HIP. And eventually one of those projects became the Harry Potter Alliance. And that ended up allowing me to uh, do that full time. And so I left the comedy troupe and was now leading this crazy organization called the Harry Potter Alliance. And that, that I started it in 2005. I co-founded it with, uh, with two other people. And then two years later, I became full-time. And by 2007, I had left the Late Night Players. And the rest is history. Well, and it's the Harry Potter Alliance is how I was introduced to you and your work. For many years on Facebook, because of friends who were a part of the organization, I was able to follow what was going on, interact with many of the people who were involved in the work. But I never received an introduction to you until earlier this year when my partner, who'd been a member of the HPA... I love her. She is just... She is... She is a... You are a very lucky human being. I will say that much. 
She's just fantastic. I certainly feel very lucky as she supports this kind of work and makes connections like this yeah. because of, we both see that the work that we do in the world matters mm -hmm. and that it's important to be able to tell these kinds of stories and to be in places where what we do has a difference for people because what you were saying about you know loving humanity, it's one of those places that I come from, even though I joke sometimes that I'm kind of misanthropic as a person, mm. that deep down I really love people and I love humanity and what we're capable of and what we can do. And it's fascinating for me because of all the stories that we tell. Yeah. I grew up in Appalachia, you know, the son and, well, really the grandson of Appalachian hillbillies. Yeah. And so, you know, we'd get together and we'd drink and we'd fight and we'd tell stories and play music around the campfire. And that was most of my life. And my parents told stories of, of me reading at a young age. And I remember reading the Lord of the Rings and the Dragonlance books and all this fantasy stuff when I was around the time I was 10 years old. My friends mm. introduced me to role playing games. And so we're learning the power of storytelling in a social group. Since then, meeting people who've been working on these narratives about how do we envision the future? How do we tell these stories collectively that have meaning and matter from where we come from? Yes. How can we find the common threads within the stories that people tell? So that when we get meet somebody who's new to us, who has a different political background or a different social background, we can pull out these threads of connection mm -hmm. and be able to find a way to be human beings with each other rather than being some kind of a label of some kind that we're just people. Yeah. And then be able to start a conversation about what matters between us. And that's why permaculture has had such an impact on me because so many people care about their families, their communities, the food that they eat, having a safe and healthy place to grow up or mm -hmm. to raise children. And so that's where I was really interested in what you were doing because of how you're telling these stories and bringing so many people together from so many disparate backgrounds to have this common thread and interest in social good. Wow. Uh, where, where in Appalachia did you grow up? Uh, West Virginia. West Western Virginia. Maryland. Oh, I love West Virginia. Yeah. West Virginia. There's, there's something about this, about the United States, where there are certain areas that don't look like any other area. Mm -hmm. Arkansas is one of those for me. I, I just, I've never been at a place like Arkansas. The way the sky, this particular way the sky opens is really interesting. The way it's kind of got a damp quality to it. Have you been to Arkansas? Mm -hmm. Uh, the trees, like the neat, just something very distinct. I don't think there's any place in the United States that is more distinct than West Virginia. It is just so utterly distinct and just beautiful. There's something mystical to me about it. It's not good if you um, if you get carsick easily, just because of just the road. The roads are so windy and rickety, and just there's just there's, it's so mountainous. It's so oh, but it's just there's a I have such a romantic love for West Virginia that I yeah. Well, the mountains, as you mentioned, in the, I think of the mountains and the hollows because it's one of the few places where I've been where you always have to look up to see the sun. Yeah. And the horizon is close in and you have to look up to see the sky. Yeah. And, and, although, and yeah, with West Virginia, though, like, unlike, like, let's say, a Denver, Colorado, which I also love, like, you don't get uh, altitude sickness, really, in West Virginia. I don't, think the, I don't think it goes as high. So it's, it's, you still, you've got mountains, but you're still very close to the earth. You've got this, like, um, you're close to the, yeah, it just... Oh, that's really interesting about the sun, though. And so you, you actually literally would, would be with your family. There would be getting drunk and telling stories around a campfire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that is such a, um, you know, this archetypal feeling of the, that has been how humanity has always been. is this campfire notion and sitting around the power of fire, mm -hmm. um, light in the middle of darkness. Humans gathered around the light in the middle of darkness and telling stories that that give us a sense of hope, of light in the middle of darkness. Certainly, Lord of the Rings is, is one of those stories. I'm going to confess um, that in, in, my, in my years in uh, nerdy fan communities, 
I am a bit of a fraud because I do talk a lot about Lord of the Rings and I've only read part of Fellowship of the Ring. I have watched the movies. I love the movies. I know that some people just argue, just read the freaking books. And I, I, I think I've developed a phobia at this point because I'm so much of a fraud. It feels like that, that imposter syndrome kicks in. You can't read everything. Right. But Lord of the Rings, you really should read if you're into fantasy. That's the, so that's my confession to you. One of many, maybe, but that's, that's, yeah, that's one. But yeah, so Lord of the Rings, though, I think, uh, you know, I think back to the, the speech that Samwise Ganji gives to, uh, to Frodo when they're in the midst of, uh, in, you know, in Two Towers, just this sense that stories give us uh, power and give us light in the darkness. And I think there's just this idea of you being with the people you grew up with in a mountainous area under the sky that's dark and sitting around light and sharing light in those stories. It's, uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. And it's like from that kind of a formative idea, I look at the way that we all engage though in stories every day, whether we're at our job and we're trying to relay an idea. Very often there's an anecdote or a story that comes with it. There's movies are, you know, continue to blow up as these bigger and bigger blockbusters that then become this shared culture that we have, which is interesting for me. One of the things I was thinking about on the way over was that one of my good friends spent his first like eight years of his life in Africa because his parents were on mission work. Mm-hmm. So by the time he came back and was becoming exposed to media, he didn't have any of the cultural touchstones that my friends and I did watching TV when there were only four stations, yes. as opposed to him coming back when cable was starting to blow up. So he's had like 30 or 40 stations to pull from. So he didn't have the same stories that we did. Mm. And so it wound up then becoming, what are the stories that we tell now that connect us, that give us this continuity that you might not have had from having this shared experience as children? Yeah, that's amazing. That's really interesting. And, I mean, yet when he was doing the mission work, he was also using the power of story. So he was completely immersed in story while he was doing that. He just wasn't immersed in the same stories that you were immersed in. Mm-hmm. I would argue that they, there's probably a lot of parallels between those stories. But, um, but yeah, there's, there is something innately human about the way our brains work that we need, to, we need to put things into narratives. And if you look at the people who memorize things really well, like weird amounts of numbers... They do it by taking the numbers and associating it with some kind of story. Um, and so it's, it's just how our minds work. And for those who want to make a difference in the world, if you're not using story, I'm not sure what it is you're doing. Like, you need to, you need to just respect the species that you are trying to change. And uh, the species that we are, we are in is, is a, we are a storytelling species. Mm-hmm. And through your work with the arts and the HPA and your interest in social activism and social change, how have you been applying story then to bring about this kind of transition or transformation? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. And um, yeah, the HPA, we, we didn't call it the, I mean, it was just, at first it was called the, uh, the HP Alliance because we were afraid of getting sued. Uh, and then we started calling it the Harry Potter Alliance once J.K. Rowling mentioned us in Time Magazine, which was crazy. Then we were like, okay, we're not going to get sued. And then it eventually started calling it the HPA. I mean, the, the quick way to talk about the Harry Potter Alliance is I'm, I'm reading these books. I'm amazed by them. I end up going online and looking at the Harry Potter fan community. Now, you grew up playing these role-playing games. I, I played so many fantasy games as a kid without knowing they were fantasy games. I did not play Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And that, that is not to say that I wasn't considered nerdy. I, I completely was. I just didn't, I wasn't exposed to Dungeons and Dragons in any, and it, so I, I didn't know what fandom was, but I, I, I went, I went on, um, in 2005, 
uh, I went online and I just started searching for Harry Potter to just find other people that were passionate about this the way I was. And I couldn't believe what I had found. Like, it was like you, you had... You had bands, these wizard rock bands like Harry and the Potters and others that were singing about Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. You had fan fiction, writing uh, fantasy about Harry Potter. You had podcasts talking about Harry Potter, conferences about Harry Potter. Just this sense of community and richness, just all about Harry Potter. And the books are still coming out at this point. So there's this real feeling of freshness and just people just being so excited. But I was like, there's no activism in any of this. Mm -hmm. There's none. There was a couple of charities, but be, uh, but very few and far between, and I, I, I began asking the, um, the sort of big-name fans, like, if Harry Potter were in our world, wouldn't he do more than simply talk about how awesome it is to be Harry Potter in, in creative ways? Wouldn't he fight for justice in our world the way he fought for justice in his? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in the books, he starts a student activist group called Dumbledore's Army. So what if we could create a Dumbledore's Army for our world? Uh, and let's call it the Harry Potter Alliance. And I came up with that word... Uh, because I didn't want to call Thumbledore's Army for whatever reason. I just felt like, well, that's in the books already. Let's make it something like that's real here, that we're in alliance with the text of Harry Potter. We're in alliance with Harry Potter. And alliance is, um, is a, uh, an homage to World War II, is the, the, the Allied forces. That's where George Lucas came up with the Rebel Alliance. And, and Harry Potter is a, essentially a retelling of World War II, very intentionally. So we began to build, and we began to grow. And, and as we did... The results have been, you know, fantastic. We, we, uh, and this is when I was when leading the organization. I'm no longer uh, since 2015. Um, by the time that I had left, I, I believe there were thousands of chapters that had been started in in over 30 countries and six continents. Never got to Antarctica. Maybe one day the Harry Potter lines will. We sent five cargo planes to Haiti, uh, full of life-saving medical supplies after the uh, the um, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. We uh, built libraries across the world. We got Warner Brothers. Uh, this took a long time, but we, we persuaded in what was often a tense campaign to get Warner Brothers to make all Harry Potter chocolate fair trade or UTS certified um, as a hopefully a blow towards child slavery that the cocoa trade is so uh, immersed in. Uh, we introduced uh, John Green, the, the, the great John Green, who's a friend and just a brilliant um, artist and on so many levels. We introduced him to Partners in Health and uh, his community of uh, Nerdfighteria, they call, uh, Nerdfighters, has raised over $10 million to this day to Partners in Health. And, and it was our, our efforts that got him hooked into Partners in Health. Um, although, you know, he would have done something amazing no matter what. So I don't want to take credit for that piece. And I don't want to take credit for any of it, really, because this was the, about a community of people uh, with so much heart and they were so ready to give into the world. We did a lot of LGBTQ advocacy, um, uh, just a, a whole w wide range of issues, talking about depression, all of these, these pieces. I would argue that of these things, the number one thing that we did was make an argument that fantasy is not an escape from our world. It is an invitation to go deeper into it. And when we respect fantasy... When we respect story, we, we can understand that you know, we dream at night, but it's our books, it's our TV shows, it's our movies, it's, it's all of our comics, our musicals, all of our stories that are our culture dreaming. And when we're, dream, we're, uh, when we're, uh, we're working with those stories, uh, we're doing cultural dream work. And when we're working with the stories that are most popular, I, I call it doing cultural acupuncture. And uh, the way I describe that is cultural acupuncture is you find where the energy is in the culture and meet people where they're at. We can meet people where they're at. We don't have to be where they're at, but we can meet them where they're at. 
and um, find where the energy is is authentic is there, and and when work with that energy authentically to create a healthier body for our world. And and stories are, are proverbial needles; they're the things that resonate. So uh, so yeah, fantasy is not an escape from our world, but an invitation to go deeper into it. And as I was continuing to do this work, I began to get confronted with this question about rituals. And I can go into that uh, in, 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 a, in a lot of ways, but, but one of the most profound examples was I, after I left the Harry Potter Alliance, I was doing a campaign on Star Wars, and uh, on Star Wars Day, you know, May the 4th, for May the 4th be with you. And we ended up, I ended up talking to Star Wars fans, and what do you do on Star Wars Day? And they, they watch Star Wars, they celebrate Star Wars. I was like, this is very similar to the Harry Potter fandom. So what can we get, what can we do? And we, we thought, well, we can get people to, um, uh, to uh, celebrate their teachers because so much of, of Star Wars is about the, the teacher-student relationship, the mentor relationship. So we called it Teach Me You Did for like Yoda speak, like, hmm, teach me you did. Uh, Got to work on my Yoda a little bit, but let me, let me try it again. <clears> oh, <throat> teach me you did. All right. Anyway, uh, we ended up um, working with uh, the American Federation of Teachers, the second biggest teacher union in the U.S., and celebrating uh, people, celebrating the teachers in their lives, whether it's public teachers, uh, public school teachers, or, or their parents, or their siblings, or their children, or their friends, or anyone that's taught them anything, uh, with hashtag Teach Me You Did every May 4th. This was eye-opening for me, because I began to think, okay, what is going on there uh, with rituals? Uh, this is really interesting. I've been so focused on the story, but what about the ritual? You know, so much of the organizing with the Harry Potter lines was always around, well, when's the next book coming out? And then once the books were over, when's the next movie coming out? These are rituals. The book openings, for anyone who remembers the book openings of Harry Potter, you, were you, you remember this? The, mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, were, they were such rituals of, of uh, people dressing up as witches and wizards and getting in line and, uh, and children being allowed to, to wait up till midnight and with their parents. It was just such an exciting, the buzz was incredible. And then the, then the movies, and I, you know, I began just thinking about this idea that Star Wars Day is a great example of, of a holiday that has just been invented, and it's about celebrating uh, Star Wars. So I began looking at, well, who, who did Joseph Campbell? You know, you know Joseph Campbell? Mm -hmm. And he's, he's the great mythologist who inspired uh, George Lucas to make Star Wars and you know, came up with the monomyth, mono which we call the hero's journey, and um, uh, that, there's, that there's a pattern across all storytelling um, in essentially 12 stages. And in his interview with Bill Moyers, he said, I was wondering, did he say anything about ritual? And he says, ritual is where we enact the myth. So this became very important to me around 2016, was this, okay, well, what are our rituals? What, what are the things that we are celebrating? And what is, this, what is the myth that they're telling? And in this case, myth being the big story. So when you go to Starbucks, what is, that's a ritual. What is, what is the story that's being told? And it's an interesting question. There's a lot that comes out of that. When we celebrate July 4th, what is the story that's being told? Um, what is the story of July 4th? And, and can it be improved? And, uh, you know, we, we're seeing a, uh, a century where we talk about maker culture and people making their own things and, and creating their own things. And I, I think the permaculture community is a great example of that. Um, and so, so we can look at this and ask, okay, in that maker culture, what are good examples? So Giving Tuesday is a great example of people making a new holiday. And uh, there's just so many of them, actually. And sometimes they get a little, like, obscene or crazy, like like meatball sandwich day. or you know, There's just sort of, like, there's a kind of a day for everything. 
but there's more um, really interesting, powerful things that can get beyond the randomness of that. You can really do um, some serious cultural acupuncture or alchemy with. I like the word alchemy too, because alchemist, you know, it's, there's lead, but you can turn the lead into gold. Um, we can, uh, can I use profanity on here? I don't, uh, you, we can turn, I mean, shit can be transformed into fertilizer. So you, we, we look at the world, we see all of these problems, but it's all of the shit, but we have to remember that there is a way by which shit carries the ingredients for fertilizing our planet. And most of the planet that we're eating from and we're living from comes out of waste, whether it's animal waste or human waste or, or just the waste of corpses um, decomposing to then allow for trees and to allow for life. Mm. Life is built on death and life is built on shit. So we are a world with shit and sunshine. You know, as a Jew, I, I always say, oi, you know, oi. But then I'm also kind of Buddhist and Hindu and I do the, the mantra of om. So I like to call it the oi and the om. We're, 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 we're constantly undulating between this oi and the om. One of the lines within permaculture is that everything gardens. And it's one of the ways that we look at our consumer culture, what resources we want to use, because that as waste kind of breaks down, there are different organisms throughout this entire system that use it. And what are the best ways that we can then take everything that's around us and kind of slow the entropy? That that mm. acupuncture, that releasing of energy is how can we make the best use of a resource? Mm. And I think that it's our cultural energy is one of the things that's really lacking in not only permaculture, but many other movements that are trying to catalyze good social change and to bring about transformation within our society that can create something that is more sustainable, more resilient, more equitable, but that it gets lost in this kind of dominant narrative that's where the hegemony is, is in this larger story. Yeah. So how do we then, as individuals, as activists, as communities, start to tell stories that hook people, that engage them, that then create these new rituals? And that's what I'm hearing in what you've been working on and what you've been doing is you've been having those kinds of results. I should note that these aren't always great results. Sometimes they're right. they're great and sometimes they're not. I mean, I'm, I'm all about, you know, th you know, throw as much shit against the wall and see what sticks. Um, unfortunately, you end up with a, with a floor covered in shit, but like, um, but then you turn that floor into, into fertilizer. So, you know, a, a plan is a basis for change and we got to keep um, creating more and more experiments and some of them are going to work and, and the ones who, that don't, I, I end up learning more from the ones that don't than the ones that do. So yeah, I've been, I've been working with, with rituals. Uh, Teach Me You Did is still going. It's not going as strong as I want it to go, but um, I mean, people should do it uh, on May the 4th. They should be, they should be doing uh, Teach Me You Did That's, or maybe another Star Wars hook. But yes, as for permaculture, yes, what is the way by which it can move and get people more engaged and, and feel like it's not, you know, someone who doesn't know about permaculture, I, I, I'm pretty low information on permaculture. How do I do this? How do I engage without feeling intimidated? How do I do this in a way? Because it sounds like it's got like a pretty heavy lift. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change my life in a way that feels intimidating. Uh, I don't know if I have time. I don't know if I have money. I, all these fears start coming up. Like, oh, I want to do it in theory. But like, mm -hmm. but is there a way that's going to make it feel fun? to make it feel playful, to make it feel like I'm part of a mission with, with other people. And I think that's a, that is a challenge that I think you're posing, and I'm, I'm posing to everyone who's passionate about permaculture, but it's a challenge that I pose for myself about anything that I'm passionate about, is how, you know, I, I have a, a line I like to say that a, a good leader does what's right over what's popular. A great leader takes what's right and makes it popular. How do we take what's right and make it popular? And stories are the way, a, pa a path to do it, and there's multiple different kinds of stories. There's the, 
I'm sharing an individual story with you, my vulnerable story with you. Uh, I haven't gotten too vulnerable here, but I, I could do that. There's uh, the story of my collective people. And who is that? And I could say the Jewish people. I could say the people of the United States of America. I could say the people that are the human species. I could say sentient life. And there's so many ways to talk about a collective story. And then there's the mythological level of stories. You know, the, the stories that we say, they're not real, but they are real on some level. They're, they're real inside of us. They're, you know, Dumbledore says to Harry, you know, of, 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 you know Harry says, is, is, is this real or is it just happening in my head? And Dumbledore replies, of course, it's happen just happening in your head, Harry. But why on earth did that mean that it isn't real? Right. Which brings me to one of my favorite myths, which I, I know we'll be getting to at some point uh, talking about, which is Santa Claus. And as, as a Jew, it's interesting I was raised believing in Santa Claus, uh, not Christian, not, not believing in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, although I have such a deep love for Christianity, but, but believing in Santa. And it's, it's, it's only until recently I, I made the connection that Dumbledore is a lot like Santa Claus. They're, they have a lot of similarities. So, so yeah, that, there's, there's a lot in all of that. Well, I think about making something real. If, that if I say, imagine a unicorn, we mm. can agree roughly on what that is, and we can picture it in our mind's eye. Well, when you say Santa, we can both picture that. We both know that Santa isn't an entity that we're likely to encounter in our lives, but we still have this image of what that story is. And that's where like, a lot of permaculture education is about the landscape, because that's a place that we can all work within and, vi and visualize and work with. Mm. And then it's how we build things on top of that. And that's where these stories, I think, are missing a lot of times within the permaculture community in particular, is that we have these individual connections with each other. We might belong to certain permaculture groups, but as a broader movement, it's still kind of continuing to pick up steam. Yep. And many of the people who were here who were really good storytellers, are really good authors, were from the early generation, so they've, they're now no longer at the forefront, or regretfully some of them have passed away. Hmm. So how then for the rest of us who are not necessarily gardeners and landscape designers pick up that mantle and tell the stories then that bring people from the outside in to recognize that, okay, gardening is a piece of this, but there's so much more that goes into this idea of creating permanent culture than just the way that we grow food. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why do you care about permaculture? Why do you love it? Why do you spend so much time talking about it? I like it because there's an ethical base within it, because it's the idea that we're going to care for the earth, we're going to care for people, and we're going to redistribute the surplus, mm -hmm. um, called fair share. Originally, the idea was to limit population, um, but it's been focusing much more on that return of resource since then. But I like that there's an ethical component to the way that we care about things. And a big piece of it for me is that, part of my story, I grew up thinking that we were going to have people on the moon, if not Mars, by the time I turned 21. That we were going to have people living in space full time or off this planet because those were the stories that I grew up. That was popular mechanics, that was popular science, right, right. writing about these things, that flying cars and electric cars. We finally have electric cars and some of these other things, but we don't have any permanent habitat outside of Earth. And so for me, it was that recognition that this is our only home. Yeah. And then as I've been able to meet astronauts um, like Dr. Mae Jemison, who now runs the 100-year Starship program. Listening to her speak, she was talking about how energetically hard it is to leave Earth. Yeah. And that when I think about when people go, oh, well, we can go to Mars, we can go somewhere else, that's not going to be most of us. I mean, I as a Westerner am in a place where socioeconomic, well, culturally, if not necessarily socioeconomically, I'm fairly well off. I don't have to worry where my next meal is going to come from. I have a roof over my head. But I know that if things really go to shit, I'm not going to be somebody who's leaving. 
Like, it doesn't matter how good I am in my life now, I'm not going to be one of those people who gets out. So I really have to care about the place that I live and the people who are around me. And I mean, as we were saying earlier, I'm 40 and I'm thinking about having more children with my partner. And I go, you know, I already have children. I want to provide a future for them that is going to be meaningful. And there are a lot of folks who talk about not having children. And for me, children are hope. Hmm. Like really deep down, hmm. children are hope. And I think about that every day in the work that I do and the resources that I use about how can I make this world a little bit better for those who come after me? How yeah. can I be a good ancestor so that generations from now people are telling stories about the work that we did today? Wow. That is a beautiful answer. And I now want to find out, okay, well, what, what's the first step I can do to do something permaculture-wise for someone who's like, you know, it's just permaculture 101, who's not done anything. I mean, I compost. I don't, I don't, I don't think that would be permaculture. It's a start. It's a start. So, that's, so, so those types of things. Okay, I'm right, Because that's returning resources to the earth. Right. Okay. Then, so that we're, we're turning that shit into fertilizer. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, that's a very practical thing. But I also think about where we are in Washington, D.C. today. Mm-hmm. I love cities because they're walkable which people like um, Jeff Speck and the urbanists talk about how walkable cities, the amount of resource used per person, per capita, is substantially lower because everything's together. We're in an apartment building, yep. so we have this vertical integration, so there's a great density here. Yep. So yeah, I mean, I think about making that choice to live in a city rather than inflicting yourself on land that doesn't need you. There's a fellow who I interviewed years ago, That's what, that was one of his statements, was you know, think about where you're at. What are you doing? What are you using? And those are the places where I find that are the easiest ways to first get involved with these ideas of permaculture. And what about the purity test? Like this, like, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I like, for instance, just to give you an example, like, I, I want to become a vegetarian. I'm not, I mean, I'm assuming that plenty of people who are into permaculture are not vegetarians. I, I ethically believe that it would be better for me to be a vegan. Mm-hmm. I am a total meat eater. Mm-hmm. Like, I eat beef and I am a climate activist. What's wrong with me? Like, I, you know, I, I don't know. But I try to limit. I was at the climate strike on September 20th, and I was working with a bunch of, of uh, I, was, I was helping in New York City, and I was so hungry. And I was like, if I don't eat something, I will not be useful. And the only thing near me was a hot dog stand. So I had two hot dogs. Was that some kind of sin? Like, I'm like, I, is there some kind of permaculture god that I must, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> this is where Tasha Kluna, who's out of Australia, who's known as the permapixie. She and I talked about this, and as I said, there are three, three primary ethics of permaculture, but we talk about a lot of other ones all the time. And she proposed the idea that we need an ethic of transition because we do live in a culture that means that we don't always have access to the foods that we're interested in. Yeah. If you're living in a food desert... Right. That's a big one. resource right? that's a, limited. It's a really big one because these eco-societies can get classist on accident. Yes. Uh, Which is a big thing that I try that I try to stay away from. I know a lot of po- folks in permaculture, we're talking about decolonizing permaculture. How do we step away from some of these, these like sins of civilization? And a lot of this is that it's not about being judgmental. It's about what can I do today to make a difference? Yeah. And then what can I do, you know, personally within my life? Internally, but also what externally can I do by writing to a, a corporation and asking them, hey, can you make sure that in your grocery store you're carrying more locally raised meats? Can you make sure that this meat is certified as mm. humane? Can we gamify that? That's what I'd like to figure out too. Like there's some kind of fun like Pokemon Go like like app where you're like, you're, you're just, you're showing, not, yeah, you're showing people Actually, what you've... There is yeah. someone who I interviewed, uh, Fair Food or- Forager is an app that's about that, that's classifying stores and restaurants and ah. places by a number of different criteria. 
so that they get more points based on what it is that they oh, carry. What it is. God, that that's with. good. That would be so. I mean, if we and if we can make it like where there's a game and you're fighting somebody else, like, right. like playing to people's competition. I want to. I want to offer a story, just because um, I was inspired by what you said, and I, I do. I do want us to get to Santa Claus, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do want to offer this story because I do think it provides a greater context, and I don't. I don't feel like we've made it cohesive enough at this mm-hmm. point, so. Joseph Campbell, in that interview with Bill Moyers, was asked, you know, what, are you, what are you seeing as the new myths that will emerge? And his prediction was that the new myths, and this was, in the, this was in the early 80s, that the new myths that were on their way would be around, so the new stories would be around this, what they ended up, what they ended up saying together would be around this, this the, the Gaia principle, mm-hmm. this idea that we are one living organism as a planet. Joseph Campbell invoked uh, Chief Seattle's famous letter. And so there's, a, there's an indigenous component to this that Joseph Campbell thought was very important as well, and that that would be invoked as well. And he basically predicted what was coming down the pike, from Dances with Wolves in the 80s um, to, to The Lion King to uh, Fern Gully, if you know Fern Gully, which is such a fantastic film. And, um, and it's the predecessor to James Cameron's Avatar, essentially inspire James Cameron to make Avatar. There was just so much richness in these stories to Harry Potter, uh, which deals so much with this Earth-centered Phoenix song and this concept of the Phoenix. And so much of Harry Potter is a philosophical war between the Phoenix, who defines itself by life, death, and then rebirth, um, versus Voldemort, which in French means to flee from death. We live in a culture that is trying to flee from death, where we, we look at that which is yo- as younger as good and that which is older as bad. We want to stay away from death. We want con- to buy consumer products to keep us away from this inevitable thing. And we're framing it in a way that is terrifying because why enter a game that you aren't going to lose? If you look at death as something to, uh, as the next step in an adventure, Dumbledore says, you know, Dumbledore aspires to be the phoenix. To the well-organized mind, Harry, death is but the next step in a great adventure. Then we are constantly moving towards victory. But if you look at death as a defeat, then Voldemort ends up becoming some kind of twisted logical extension of that thinking. So there is this larger sort of set of generations that that have been brought up in the West and beyond around this sort of Gaia principle that you see in The Lion King, certainly, the circle of life, all of these pieces. And I've thought a lot about this and a lot about um, indigenous culture and how that, that through most indigenous cultures, you'll hear about the earth as our mother, Mother Earth. And normally, you, you, you hear about the father living in the sky. And, uh, and that certainly scans uh, with, within the, uh, the, the, uh, the monotheistic religions of the West, uh, the, the Abrahamic, you've got the father lives in the sky. Uh, and people praying to the, you know, the father in the sky. There's not that much talk about a mother. And, and that is a society that has been particularly misogynistic and, and has done a lot of damage to the earth in ways that no other culture has ever done. Uh, I don't think that's a total coincidence. But if we think about that deeply, there's not that many female symbols, uh, archetypal, in the, uh, in the sky. There is... Um, the exception to that would be the moon. Although in Germany, my understanding is that they, they see the moon as, uh, as masculine, which is an interesting twist. But, but the moon is, is, uh, is shaped like an egg, and it runs on a 28-day cycle, just like eggs do. It's insane to just think about that. Um, uh, so there's a story that begins to emerge for me, a mythological story of, okay, from a Western perspective, and this is just purely from a Western perspective, 
what is our relationship to these archetypal parents of Mother Earth and Father Sky? And I, I think about it as like, okay, well, how is the sky the father and the earth the mother? Well, from an evolutionary standpoint, it makes perfect sense that we, we all have evolved out of a, there was a little bacteria that crawled across the ocean and we are all you know, onto the sand and we are all the descendants of that bacteria, all us, on, us land-dwelling creatures. We all, you know, the dinosaurs and us, we all come from that, those first bacteria that, that stepped on. We came out of the ocean, we came out of the fluid, uh, which is exactly where we come out of within a, within a mother's womb. Uh, the earth is our mother. But what's the sky have to do with it? Well, the sky sends sun, the sky sends rain. That's the sperm. And so then a poetic way of looking at this would be when, when it's thundering and lightning, that's the passion of, of the father and mother making love. That's, that's a, this deep well of, of passion. And, um, and so, yes, we have this beautiful father, mother, uh, father sky, earth, uh, mother earth. What's our relationship to them? And it appears that since the agrarian, agrarian revolution, when we began to realize that we had some control in the situation, we began to want more of it and fear the lack of control. And within the West, we eventually get to a sort of stage that, I, that, that mirrors that of a teenager that wants to be independent. Like, mom, dad, I don't need you. Like, I don't need it. I don't want to have to depend on rain. I don't want to have to depend on mom to create food coming out of her, like crops and all that. I want to make my own stuff. I want to do it on my own. And it mirrors really well just this experience that we've been in as a species that um, resembles that of a teenager. It's been really exciting the last few hundred years. Teenagers learning about their body. We've been learning about the body of the planet, about the body of the solar system, of the universe, of, of the psyche, of the mind. We've learned so much in these last few hundred years of this sort of teenage experience. And it's a rush. It's also incredibly dangerous. And being a teenager can be incredibly lonely. You begin to feel alienated and angsty. And you start to do damage. Real damage, uh, if you're not careful. And we haven't been careful. Some of us have, but not enough of us have. And we've lost a unifying story that gives reverence to our archetypal parents. Now, we are on the brink of doing something quite extraordinary, which is AI. What is humanity's child? I think of our actual children. That's biological. Or, or making a piece of art. That's also you know, a form of having a child. Or creating an organization or a set of ideas. It's all a way of birthing things. But none of those have, aside from the child, they're not conscious. They're not, they're not, they're not sentient. AI is the first time we will have created an object that presumably has consciousness. This would be humanity's child. Are we ready for a world like that? No, we are absolutely not ready. In our culture, if you're a teenager, this is when the context of this culture, it is not a good idea to be a teenage parent. But here we are, nonetheless. We are about to give birth to AI, it's coming down the pike swiftly, according to Moore's Law, exponentially. And we are not ready. We are literally not ready. But nonetheless, here we are. So we're about to be a teenage parent. And when you become a parent, what do you need to do? You need to start thinking about your own parents. And you, start, you need to start coming into some kind of connection with them and understand that this is not about independence anymore. It's about interdependence now that you're becoming a parent. So this is the time we have to reformulate what is our connection to Father Sky and to Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's going to hurt to realize the damage that we have done here. Not to the Earth, but to ourselves and to our animal cousins. And the Earth has survived far more than anything we've given it so far. But this 
pain that we have created, this extra layer of carbon and methane that is creating the uh, climate change such that we now know that we're on the dawn of a new decade here, 2020. This is the decade we have. That's it. It's exciting because, wow, we can actually pull this off. This is a myth. This is a story. It's like in the nick of time, we can change everything. We can reformulate it. We can activate that Gaia theory. We can get everybody in the world into permaculture or whatever it is. This is a freaking emergency. But if we don't, if we don't have the emissions or eliminate the emissions of carbon and methane, then we are dooming our children to a sixth extinction. And that's the math. And you can't argue with the math. The planet's not playing politics. The planet is not partisan, except for equilibrium. That's all it's partisan to. It's just finding that balance. And it will find that balance. So can we, as we enter this stage of AI where we become parents, can we grow up? Can we grow up? You know, Gandhi was asked, what do you, what do you think of Western civilization, Mr. Gandhi? And he said, I think it sounds like a nice idea. We keep talking about the end of civilization. I'm interested in the start of civilization. Have we ever fully been civilized? Can we be? Can we allow for our messiness and at the same time repair our relationship that is messy with our mother and father? A relationship with your parents will always be messy. And I think that's where we are right now. And so a passion project for me is how do we make sure that we are living in such a way as, as you're talking about with permaculture that feels activated, that feels connected to a larger story where we are saving ourselves, saving the future, and living in accordance with what we actually are. How do we do that? We have to do it. And we have to find ways to activate people. I think a lot of people don't um, know how to do it, how to start. They don't see the, the, the potential they have. I'll, I'll stop there, but I'll... Well, but what you were saying there about starting this does lead us to the final part of our conversation today is because you're working on one of those stories to get people engaged using a common myth as we're recording this near the holidays of one of the figures that we mentioned earlier of Santa Claus yes. of this of this figure that is cross-cultural within yep. western societies wherever you know Christianity and the idea of St. Nicholas and Christmas and all these pieces coalesce together you know, we have hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people, who are familiar with some version of a story of Santa Claus. Yes. Yes. That's, yeah, so that's, that's the right segue. I, uh, I'm just going to say one thing before I go there, which mm -hmm. is that um, Greta Thunberg has had an unbelievable effect here. You know, the, the European Union, uh, at the end of November 2019, has declared a climate change emergency. When they did declare a climate change emergency, they essentially were quoting Greta. And this Greta-inspired movement has enlisted millions of young people, of teenagers and millennials. It is unbelievable. And to think that before August of 2018, the only people who knew of Greta were, were her friends and family. That's it. What did she do? She took her passion and she sat down in front of a government building on a Friday and she started to strike from school on Fridays. This somehow, this one simple act, somehow inspired young people, mainly in, in Germany and then throughout Europe, to start doing it in groups. And it started to grow. And within a year, you've got the, the climate strike on, on September 20th, uh, within 13 months, and you've got millions of people striking for the climate, such that the pressure of this has helped move the entire European Union to get its 28 member states to say, we have a climate emergency, we're not taking the Paris Accord seriously enough, and we've got to do more. 
It's not adequate though. It is amazing, but inadequate. We need more people than teenagers and millennials striking for, for, for the future. We need more of that. So I, I've been thinking for years, um, before I knew of Greta, what is the type of thing that could mobilize young children? Now I'll ask this, who could be the Greta for, for kids? And uh, the answer I've come to is Santa Claus. Now, not all kids believe in Santa Claus, but according to some studies I've been looking at within the United States, over 80% of three to seven-year-olds believe in Santa Claus. That's a lot of kids. Where does Santa live? The North Pole. Well, Santa's home in the North Pole is melting and we need to save it. And that is such an amazing way of phrasing it. And, and the reason why is because when we're talking to three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, six, seven, we, it is completely unfair to terrify them about climate change. It, they, they don't deserve that kind of existential terror. I mean, none of us do. But they, they can't process that at this point. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. So you, we need to position the story such that they are the heroes of the story, not the victims of it. Because the reality is, if we aren't hearing from those children, mm -hmm. if we aren't, you know, you said children are hope. They are our hope. We need to hear from them. Both the teenagers, their children, but also the smaller children as well. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what can we do without, you know, parents who are ecologically conscious are struggling to, to say, well, how do I even talk to my young kids about this without terrifying them? Well, and it's within the bounds of environmental, within the bounds of environmental education, one of the things that we talk about is no tragedies before the fourth grade. Hmm. That it's not talking about the loss of the polar bears or, you know, these very real tangible things that children can interact with until they're eight or nine years old. Well, developmentally, they're not, it, it won't be helpful mm -hmm. for them. It's not, it's not, they're not ready to deal with concepts like that. And if it's introduced too early, it can be very damaging, and I, I don't think it, it's, it'll be rewarding um, in, in the sense of uh, it being effective type of types of things. So then, so then what are the paths? And Santa Claus is such... It, it, Santa Claus is not the only answer, clearly. But I, I see Santa as an amazing opportunity. Um, uh, I love this term that, that a friend of mine came up with, crisis-tunity, um, that every crisis is also an opportunity. So let's look at the climate crisis as a crisis-tunity. And, and in one way to solve that crisis is through Santa Claus. Here we have a myth that I grew up as a Jew believing in, uh, uh, Santa, and he invites a feeling of mirth and, and myth and magic and just all of the things that, that remind us of childhood, the, the spirit of childhood. You know, Greta just beautifully and, and in a very haunting way said before the UN uh, leaders, um, you stole my childhood. Mm -hmm. It was striking. It is not sustainable to just have a message like that. I love it, but it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. We also need to be reminded of the hope of what childhood looks like when it is not stolen. And children's love for Santa Claus is a reminder of that hope. Now, we can argue that Santa represents too much commercialization, and he does. But that's the lead. That's turning the lead into gold. What else does he represent? He represents generosity and caring, and, and, and being good to each other, and not being naughty. Don't, don't be bad, be good, be kind, be jolly. It, which, it, it, have fun, have a kind of irreverent fun, eat cookies, you know, like, enjoy life. But there is a, a sense of coziness of the holidays that, that, that comes with it. So if the idea is that, well, we know he lives in the North Pole, and, and we know that the North Pole's melting, well, we've got to save it. And that plays into a, a pretty famous trope within the Santa mythology anyway, which is the Grinch, which is Rudolph. I mean, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you've got a, a, you know, 
You've got Rudolph and his friends that have to save Santa and save Christmas. And the story is always like, we've got to save Christmas. If we don't save Christmas, then we don't, then, then we, then we don't save the world. That's the sort of, you know, that, that mythos of, uh, of, the, of the Christmas specials that we see uh, you know, every year. And so uh, a good friend of mine and I, and he, he's, his name's Sean, uh, um, uh, Sean Prisant. I can never pronounce his name right. It's Sean Prescent, uh, but I can't pronounce it right. It's Sean Prisant, I believe. Uh, sounds so French or something. It's actually... Anyway, point is that Sean, who is just absolutely incredible human being and, and, and one of my, my favorite friends, and uh, he's, a, he's a very talented writer of TV shows uh, for children, um, including a, a bunch of uh, Nickelodeon TV shows. And we sat and thought, what can we do with this concept to save Santa's home? How do we, how do we get kids and parents to get excited about saving Santa's home? So... We said, how about a children's book? So we wrote out a children's book called Save Santa's Home. And I'm a good writer. Sean is like, oh my God, he is just incredible. And he was like, oh no, it's got to look like this. I came up with all these ideas in the beginning. It was like, it's too complicated. Let's just, let's just bring it down to this. And then we just start writing rhymes together. And the rhymes are just so beautiful. And had I done it by myself, I think it would have been quite good. But Sean just polished it. He just, every, it was just like, I felt like I was working with some kind of brilliant master here. And then we hired a, an illustrator and this illustrator came back, and I, I wanted the, the, the book to, to look like one of, one of these beautiful children's books that you, know, you grow up with. And Sean writes modern cartoon shows for kids right now. He wanted it to look more like Pixar. There's not that many books, unfortunately, that look like Pixar, except Disney Pixar books. Well, mm-hmm. we're, we're, no, why, why? There's something weird going on in the publishing industry. They haven't caught on to something. Like, they'd be selling even more books if they had more of these sort of, it looks like a kid's movie. So we started working with an illustrator. This has gone on for quite some time. The book is finished. It'll be available uh, for pre-order uh, in March, and we are really excited about it. But what we're doing for this holiday season is we're turning the book um, because it won't. It, 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 it's just not going to be ready to. to um, is the publishing world? We have had a crash course in it, and it is very interesting. And we could have made it ready, but we didn't want it to be premature. So what we're doing is we are turning the book. We're working with an incredible, uh, incredible human being, Alan Lestufka. Who is um, who started uh, DFTBA, which is the uh, the record label that um, that is owned by Hank and John Green, um, and Alan started this with with uh, with Hank Green. He's a brilliant artist, uh, Alan, and he is working with us and and a friend of his, and they've they've composed music, and they're cre- and, and Alan's been making this video of Save Santa's Home, and so the book is going to be now a video that will be a gently animated uh, video with a beautiful voiceover of, of uh, reading this book by the time that Christmas hits. And we want every kid and their family to see it. And in addition, we're creating a challenge for kids to get active. Because once they see this, the, the book, it's not just the design, it's the story. It's a very story forward. A lot of children's books um, still are they're very much about the, anim- the, uh, the illustration. Mm-hmm. They don't think much about the story. This is very hero's journey, very story-oriented. While the illustration is beautiful, it, it is all to support the story. And the kids are with Santa, and they fly around in a magical sled with Santa and Slushy the bear. bear. And they have um, these beautiful um, candy canes that are, that are like wands that, that are for their fighting against monsters. And uh, the monsters are the things that are causing climate change. So we have Smog Monster Coffer, and he represents uh, air pollution. And we have the Tree Eater Cruncher, which represents deforestation. And of course, we have the Fossil Fools, which are, you know, one of the main sources of, of climate change. And in the books, in the book, they defeat all of them. But of course, by the ending, when Santa's home is, is saved, Santa brings the kids back and 
one of them says, you can't leave us because the monsters are going to come back. Um, because we, we, we don't want the kids to feel terrified, but we want the kids to know the story is not over, you know, that they have to be part of saving Santa's home. And Santa says something along the lines of, you know, you've misunderstood where the magic comes from. It's not from the sled. It's in your heart and in your head. And he gives them some tangible, concrete things to do, like turning off the light, those types of basic things. We, we should, be, should have included some more permaculture. But the key line was telling grown-ups that you care. And we're, we're getting kids and their parents, uh, parents to make videos of kids reading letters to Santa. Because every year, kids write letters to Santa about what they want as presents. Well, Santa has done a lot for us. Let's do something for him. Let's tell him we're going to save Santa's home. We've got kids everywhere that are just so excited about this. We've got a petition on change.org where it's from Mrs. Claus saying, you know, Santa and I are really upset about his home melting. You could lift the spirits by signing this. And um, uh, I might pull that up just so we can have a sample. This is not the whole story. This is just the, um, the petition. I'm just going to read to you um, what it says. And it says... So the... Um, the petition is from Mrs. Claus to the world's children, and it, it, it's to everyone, really. It says, Dear children, parents, and all who are young at heart. This is Mrs. Claus. Yes, it's really me. Things have been tough here in the North Pole due to climate change. Our home has been melting. Please cheer up Santa Claus by signing your name to this letter. Once we get to a thousand signatures, we'll share this message with world leaders. And don't forget to spread the word. So we are definitely going to be sending this to every member of the U.S. Congress. We have, we have a petition in Canada. Um, someone started that in Canada, the Canadian Parliament. And eventually, we're, we're going worldwide here. Eventually, Antarctica, too. The president of Antarctica is going to hear from us. There is no president of Antarctica. That's something maybe we should correct for because we have to defend Antarctica. But um, now we're talking about the North Pole. So the letter that kids are signing says, Dear Santa, or that we're all signing, everyone can sign, Dear Santa Claus, you know we love gifts and not lumps of coal, but the gift we want most is to help the North Pole. We won't let your home melt. You won't be alone. We're part of your squad, and we will save your home. We know that there's magic in your big flying sled, but it's also in us, in our hearts, and our heads. So as you take off and soar through the clouds, here's what we'll all do. You're going to be proud. We'll learn science in school and tell grown-ups we care. So please power our world from the sun, wind, and air. We'll plant plants and recycle and turn off the lights and close the fridge door for a future that's bright. And Santa, please know that wherever you roam, where your Santa squad members will save Santa's home. And you say people can find that petition at change.org? Yes, but they can find everything. Uh, the video, everything will be found on our website. And the website is savesantashome.us. I am crossing my fingers that uh, we will be able to purchase SaveSantasHome.com. That's coming soon. But for the time being, go to SaveSantasHome.us. You can find where to find us on Facebook. If you're on Facebook, uh, you can find the, the video of the book. You can find all the actions that we're doing and that we've been doing and how to get involved for 2020. Because really, this is not about 2019. This is about, for us, this is about getting ready uh, and creating buzz for 2020. Because 2020 will have the first Christmas of the 2020s. And that is our last decade to save the world, to save Santa's home, and to save all of our home. So we have an opportunity here, the likes of which no one in human history has ever had. We have a crisis, we have an opportunity, we have a crisis-tunity that is unprecedented. These next few years, we change everything and we renew our relationship to this planet, or we don't. The stakes could never be higher. The stakes have never been higher. 
we think about nuclear war in the 1950s and 60s as being the greatest existential threat. The thing that isn't discussed very much is the social unrest that could come from climate change could easily, I mean, think about the rogue nuclear weapons that would be around in an unstable society. We're not, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about nuclear war. We're, we're talking about the worst possible outcomes. This is not just about getting, if the temperature gets to three degrees Celsius, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The social unrest, it will be unbelievably bad. We, we, we need to prepare and to adapt and learn to love each other, and we need to mitigate. And right now, we're in these last few years where we actually have a real shot at mitigation here and major adaptation. So let's do this, but let's also not do it. Uh, we, 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 we have to be afraid. It's, it's normal. But let's have the fear in the passenger seat and have us in the driver's seat with our love, with our hope, and our ability to do what humans have done again and again and again throughout human history, from, from the darkest, from the dark ages uh, to World War II mobilization. Let us stand together and not curse the darkness, but light even the smallest candles. For it is better to light even the smallest candle than it is to curse the darkness. And if enough of us are doing that as storytellers, as, as practitioners of permaculture, as, as climate activists, we will light enough small candles that it will shine so bright. And from that light, like the light of the sun, we can power this world and we can renew it for our children, for their children, for all of our species uh, that are on this planet. And we can fundamentally create a great turning that changes our relationship to Mother Earth, to Father Sky, and to finally become in accordance with what we truly are, which is part of one interconnected web that is one living and breathing organism. And we are home. And as Dorothy says at the end of Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. So let's act like it and let's save Santa's home. And that was Andrew Slack. You can find out more about his current project at savesantashome.us. I've also included links in the resource section of this episode to the Harry Potter Alliance and other places you can find more about Andrew and his work in the wider world. When I started this podcast back in 2010, I wanted to deepen my understanding of permaculture and share what I learned during my permaculture design course. As time went on, my interview skills improved and more and more people joined me as guests including authors whose books you have on your shelves, to others recording their first-ever media appearance. As that happened, so the show became about people sharing their stories. For those who are media-savvy, to get them to stray from their talking points and tell us a personal tale about who they are, where they come from, and why what they do matters. And for those who are new, to draw out their passions and hear more about what they care about. Together we could find threads in common to connect to and inspire. That regardless of our backgrounds, we could understand one another as people and make the world smaller, more intimate, and peaceful. Meeting with Andrew and sitting down with him in his apartment in Washington, D.C., I wanted to understand how people take their stories, their art, and the connections they see to create something bigger than individual actions, something more than ourselves that is engaging, fun, and world-changing, because as permaculture practitioners, we know how to solve problems, how to grow food, how to feed people, how to care for the other than human, how to restore ecosystems, and how to repair damage to our communities. What I find missing is how we share the vision of what this beautiful, bountiful future based on ethical design looks like. How do we use story, modern myths, the arts, to create broader social change, 
How do those of us skilled beyond the landscape apply our talents to create lasting and permanent culture atop the regenerative surplus of permanent agriculture? I know many of you are artists and storytellers yourselves. You write, you draw, you make comic books, you paint. What kind of collective can we form and work together so that people yearn for the dream of a lush, verdant, and bountiful world? I would love to hear your thoughts on this and what we can do together. Leave a comment in the show notes, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day sharing your story, telling new ones, and changing the world around you while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.